Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Bros Pod is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online is back better than ever. A new web interface for the rest of the NBA season and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all the basketball and football action this season. So head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAV50, that's B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports Bros Pod. I'm here at a real undisclosed location on Long Island, you know, getting ready to uh, bring in the new year. I mean, the, uh, what are we, Christmas with, uh, you know, my family and uh, friends and uh, here holding it down with my co-host and friend, the great Jamal Murphy. Murph, happy, uh, Merry Christmas, man. What's going on? Yes, Merry Christmas. Great to be here, of course. I've been saying I had a long night last night Watching my wife uh, rap presents, so it's been oh, a, wow. it a long one. I'm not oh, I'm not good at that, so there's nothing I can do to help. Well, you could have. <laughs> it would have been it would have been ugly, you know. Convenient excuse, but so were, were the were the were the boys sleep? I mean, how, how yes. did you guys? Yeah, yeah, you, you got to wait for the for the boys to fall asleep and then uh, get to work. You know. All right. Uh, well, good. Well, anyway, listen, man. Speaking of uh, holidays and. Special specialties. We have a special guest, special guest, longtime friend, uh, an exceptional coach, somebody who basically is officially uh, one of the pioneers of uh, black college basketball coaching. And uh, talk about none other than the great Perry Clark, uh, who's joining us from, I believe, South Carolina. Is that right, Perry? Well, actually, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area today. This is home, and I came home to see some relatives and fam- and, and family, and uh, I'm actually in D.C. today. Oh, all right. And actually, early this month, you celebrated a birthday, right? You celebrated a birthday uh, December 4th. Celebrated your 35th, right? <laughs> that That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So anyway, no, Perry Clark, man. Perry and I go... Way, way back, man. In fact, uh, Perry reconnected with me uh, a couple months ago, but there was a point in time where we were talking all the time. And just to let you know, you know, Perry, like he said, he's from D.C. area. Uh, He's a player. You played at Gettysburg, right? I played at Gettysburg. I played my high school ball at DeMatha. DeMatha. I came back and coached at DeMatha. And more people know me from DeMatha than they do Gettysburg because I tell everybody, Gettysburg was more famous for the Civil War battle than for my plan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, well, you know, that's why you start off talking about, yeah, Roden, I heard you were a famous football player. And, I said, you know, man, you know, we're in the same boat. In other words, we had, we both had 
what they say, a good good experience. <laughs> uh, yes, you have set right. Did you set any records at Gettysburg? Uh, I was all conference, and uh, I led the league in foul shooting one year because coming from the math, and you had to make fouls. That was mm. Morgan ran you to death, so you know we could do that pretty good. But uh, but I did not know that you were a, a, a big time football player from Morgan State, and and that's why I gotta tell I gotta tell the fans because I know when you first got started, and I was up in Baltimore recruiting, and nobody went into Dunbar. That was like sacred territory. The great Bob Wade ran that place like a tight ship. And you had free reign of the building. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. I didn't know who you were working for. I didn't know if you were with the CIA, the FBI, the NCAA. All I know was that you were treated with great respect. And you had the ability to talk to Reggie Williams, who was then the number one player in the country. And couldn't anybody else talk to him? So you automatically got my attention. <laughs> who is this guy you know and, and i was telling you before we got on air the history is that you know uh before he was a legendary coach at uh dunbar you know i went to morgan state and uh, bob wade uh was a great player at morgan state he was he played defensive back on a lot of morgan's glory glory teams you know those undefeated great morgan teams and uh i went to morgan and all those guys, a lot of guys who went to the pros would come back. And after my freshman year, it was decided I was going to switch from wide receiver because Morgan didn't really – we were three yards in a cloud of dust. And I was going to be <laughs> in defensive back. And so that spring practice, Bob Wade was, really helped me make the transition from wide receiver. He taught me basically how to backpedal, you know, uh, you know, just how to play defensive back. And so – I knew Bob from there and, you know, played, I started three years at Morgan. And then, you know, Bob, you know, he finished his pro career, he had a great pro career. And then, you know, he turned in and he went, he got, it's such a thing, man. He started coaching basketball at Dunbar and he became, uh, there was a guy, I don't know if you knew him, uh, Perry, you know, Sugar Cane. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yep. His team. His team beat the Matha with Skip Honeycomb Wise right. by about 15, and Skip Wise had 47. Wow. And uh, so that got our attention immediately in the D.C. area because D.C. was supposed to be known for basketball. But, yeah, he did a tremendous job over there in Baltimore. Yeah. So when you were, when you were recruiting, when, when did you first start recruiting? Well, let me just tell people, man. You know, we always have to let people know who they listen to. No, they're not Pharisees. <laughs> you know, so, so let me just tell people, your, your coaching career stretched from 1975 until your retirement from University of South Carolina 2020. But you coached at DeMatha, your high school. You, you were an assistant coach at DeMatha. Then you were an assistant coach at Penn State. Then you were an assistant coach under Bobby Crimmins, right, Georgia Tech. Exactly. Yes. When Legendary. I came there, they were wearing bags over their head. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I went down there with Bobby. And I tell you a funny story. Uh, Roy Williams and I were really close. And when he heard that, that, that Georgia Tech was talking to me, he called me to talk me out of taking the job. He said, Perry, they're so bad. He said, we could have scored 100 against them. He said, in fact, they had one of their guys, Lou Grillo at the time, uh, 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 Grazo, 
and he scored a basket for North Carolina and all like that. But he, but it was funny because he <laughs> called to try to talk me out and scared the crap out of me too. But, uh, <laughs> but I wound up taking the job and, it, and I've never regretted it. Right. You got to turn it right. Will you, because you, you stayed there from 82 to 88. Now, right. did you have Kenny Anderson in that group? Kenny Anderson, Dennis Scott? I, I recruited, I recruited, I recruited all of Dennis Scott. I recruited Kenny. And I tell you, the story was, we was, th- this was supposed to be the national championship. We were going to get Dennis Scott, Alonzo Mourning, and then get Kenny Anderson. Right. And I was involved in recruiting all of those guys. And, uh, the big fella kind of ruined the party with Alonzo. And uh, <laughs> you're a friend of mine. Uh, big John, just he, he put his foot down on that one. But <laughs> I really thought that we were going to get Alonzo there too. And uh, we, uh, Bill, you know, you talk about doing these things and telling secrets. This was one of the secrets for recruiting. What Bobby, when they came in to visit Georgia Tech, and we had five ACC rookies of the year now. So it kind of worked. And we would bring them in, and, and Bobby would go to dinner with them on Friday. And then Saturday, I would take them to dinner with one player. And then after dinner, the team, the starters would come over, and we would sit in the restaurant, and everybody would sell the guy why they needed to come. So I'm sitting there with Mark Price, with Bruce Dalrymple, with uh, 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 John Sally, and all these key people, and we're banging Alonzo Mourning. And normally we crack them. I mean, it's like, oh, I mean, you know, Price is telling them I'm going to pass you the ball. Sally's saying, look, I'm going to help you and do all like this. So coaches couldn't come behind us and say, well, you don't want to play with that guy because he's a bum or he ain't going to pass you the ball. So we're all sitting there and get everything out. I could. And then afterwards, I take them back to the hotel, do the final pitch. All right. And then after that, Sally and the guys would take them and they go out. And it was a wrap. I could not close Alonzo morning all the way back to the hotel. Bill, he never spoke to me. Wow. He didn't say a word. So wow. I knew that that one was not going to fly. <laughs> but, uh, but but that was supposed to be. So we got Dennis and we got Kenny. And uh, and they did wind up going to the final four. I had left, but that was but they did take that group to the final four. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that was a great team. Yeah. And uh, a great you know, era, a really a great era for Georgia Tech, like you mentioned, uh, you know, Mark Price. I kind of grew up on on that on on those guys, like uh, Mark Price, John Sally, and then turning over to Kenny Anderson and uh, and Dennis Scott. And then, that was fun. Yeah, that was that was a great team. And then you left and you got your first head coaching job, right, at Tulane, where you yeah. learned your New Orleans accent. <laughs> uh, and you were you and you stayed out Tulane from nineteen eighty nine to two thousand. Then you became the head coach at Miami uh, that was in the Big East, right? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that, that was, was in the Big East. And, 2000, uh, yeah, 2004, and, you spent four seasons there. And yep. then you went to Texas A&M, Corpus Christi uh, from 2007-2011. And then you became the assistant coach, South Carolina, from 2013 to 2020. So you've had a phenomenal career, Perry. That, again, that ran from 1975 to 2020. Let, let's start from the from the from the and work backwards. Why did you finally decide that it was time? It, it was a wrap that you were gonna um and, and who knows I say retire, but who knows you could end up right, right. You know, all this money they're throwing out there, you could end up somewhere else. But but well, why did you it, it, decide it was you know you wanted to do something different? 
Well, it was it was a combination of things. It was number one, it was COVID was hitting. Uh, number two, I had planned on maybe a year before after that to maybe step aside, but they didn't know if the season was going to happen or what uh, or or not. The other thing was, I thought Frank was looking. People were coming after Frank with different opportunities and everything, and he was kind of and he was listening. And I just didn't want to relocate and go to any place in the world. And so I wanted to kind of take my career in my own hands. And I felt like I could, was going to do some things in the NBA. I had done television in all of those gaps. And I could go back and do some television. And I did not really understand how bad COVID was going to shut everything down. So that kind of threw a curveball in it. But as I told people, I wasn't, I was stepping away from South Carolina, but I was not retiring from work. I've always been like a shark. I got to swim to live. And so I got to keep working. And, um, and so that's kind of what happened. And, uh, you know, I think there'll be some other opportunities out there. I think that I still love the game and follow the game, but it's been a, it's been a fun career. Yeah. It's just, just in turning up, you know, and, and Jamal, uh, there's another podcast they call it Up Next, yep. right? And they deal with a lot of high school kids and they deal with like, you know, the high school and up and coming kids. You know, how have, how have the kids changed and how has recruiting changed from when you start, first started doing uh, recruiting, I guess when you were at Penn State as an assistant, from the time you, re, you know, you left South Carolina State. So you, you were recruiting young kids, these teenagers, from 1976 all the way to 2020, and how did the business change? I mean, uh, was it the business change or you changed? How did it change? Well, I think, first of all, back then we could go out all the time. There were no real recruiting rules. Mm. And, and uh, you know, when I – like, I saw every one of Reggie Williams' games his mm. senior year, okay? And, uh, and I didn't get him, but I wound up getting Dwayne Farrell because everybody in Baltimore knew me and knew my persistence and they liked me. And, and, and Dwayne was fairly easy recruit because he had seen me so much and spent so much time. And, you know, he, and he only spent about 10 years in the NBA. So, but I, I think the difference is the ability to touch the kids and to be able to go out and really form relationships. Uh, you know, now you're kind of on a time clock and you can only go certain times. And they handle it more like a business instead of forming relationships. And out of the relationships, you were able to get a pipeline of players and you were able to get better players. We could get better players then than you can now. That's why it's very hard to crack that elite group. When we were at Georgia Tech, we cracked that elite group. Like I said, when I came in, they had bags on their head. When I left, we were preseason ranked number one in the country. You don't see that all happen very at all now, you know, and, and the blue bloods are the blue bloods because the way the rules are, it's very, very hard to establish or to crack that because you can't afford, you don't have time to get those kind of relationships. And I think the other thing was, it was the evolution of the black coach. I think it, it, you had the John Thompson, you had John Chaney. You had Nolan Richardson. I mean, and 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 these guys were uh, able to attract a little bit like what Dion's doing now. I mean, mm. I mean, 
they, they could get blue chip players and everything. And so therefore, as an assistant, you could play on that and you could come in and take responsibility for the not just the athletic growth, but the mental and academic growth of a young person and help place them. And what a better place to do it than, than Atlanta. I mean, you know, we have, you know, Andy Young was the mayor. I tell you a funny story. The ACC came in and ruled that Andy Young, the mayor of Atlanta, was, was considered an alumnus of Georgia Tech. And so, therefore, they banded him from being able to talk to our recruits. Wow. And I have to tell you, Bill, that that only lasted about two days. And Andy being Andy, he picked up the phone. I don't know who he called, but they soon he told him he was the mayor of Atlanta and he could talk to any darn body he wanted to talk to. And if they'd had a problem with it, go see his lawyer. And you know, and 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 they did away with that, you know. But um, it was just a really, really good and very, very special time, uh, you know, at that point. So, yeah. how, so how's it changed now? So, so you used to be able to have that access. So now you're saying you can't, you really can't build relationships. It's very, very difficult to because now, number one, you could deal like moms and dads would tell you, "Coach my son, I will raise my son." Now, what they have, moms and dads wants, especially dad wants to be their friend because they want to manage their career or they want to manage their money. And so what they're asking you to do is not just coach him, but also parent him. And that probably started around the early 2000s where they wanted you to step in and you just had to act as parent as well as coach and, 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 and put the discipline off the court as well as on the court. And uh, so that was really, really a, a, a difference. I mean, I remember uh, having to take guys' car keys because, you know, they, they, they were messing up in school and all. And then the, and when I first started, mom and dad would step in and do that. You know, you call mom and dad and they would say, OK, you know, they would say they would even show up or they, they would participate in that process. And uh, I tell you, somebody now that has had great success doing it the old way is Leonard Hamilton, uh, you know, at Florida State. I mean, Leonard is still very much old school. With that, the parents are still very, very much involved. Uh, the families are still very, very much involved. And he connects with them in order to get the type of discipline and everything in the program. And that's why he's been able to get some of the players that he's gotten, because there's still parents that want that kind. They don't want you to be their buddy or their friend. They want you to be their coach and they want you to have some real straight discipline you know, with their kids over the program and everything. But, uh, you know, I tease Leonard all the time. Leonard's the only guy that guys that he doesn't play are lottery picks. Right. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I said, how can a guy be a lottery pick and you don't even start it? You know? <laughs> so it, it's just, it, it, it's really changed. And, and social media has changed so much. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's changed so much. I tell people, Social media for kids is like looking at yourself in a cracked mirror and trying to figure out how good you look. And mm -hmm. it's awful hard because the, the mirror is completely shattered and you're trying to walk away with an image of yourself that is just hard to, to be positive because the mirror is in so many pieces. And so I think that's what makes these kids so fragile 
the way they are now. Mm. How what role has uh, AAU played? You know, everybody you either demonize it or or laud it. Uh, what role? How how powerful was AAU when you know when you first went from being a, a college a high school assistant to Penn State? Uh, what what you know? Because I know that there was always you probably went to five star. There was always yeah. five star. Yeah. And there was yeah. like, remember uh, the guy, Chris, uh, what's his name? Chris. Um, Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace. And yeah, he's, he's, here. He's, he's the general manager now in the NBA. Exactly. Remember he had that blue, blue ribbon. The blue, blue ribbon. ribbon. Yeah, you know, yeah he was, sold it out the trunk of his car. <laughs> yeah, and those things were yeah. great. I mean, those things were, were really sensational. But how did that evolve? You know, by the time you got in, uh, was, was AAU, what we call AAU, just getting started? I mean, what? so just tell me the evolution yeah. of the conveyor okay. belt. Okay, Bill, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened with AAU. And, co- and any college coach that complains about it, you tell them you created it. <laughs> because here's what happened, okay? Guys that just were neighborhood guys that wanted to get players and give them some exposure got together. They were mailmen. They worked in the government. They had other jobs, and so they just got neighborhood kids together, and they went out, and they started to compete and showed interest in the kids and everything. And then here's what happened, all right? Certain schools, and I'm not going to call names, but certain <laughs> schools there we go. Started, <laughs> paying, started paying AAU programs to come and play exhibition games for them to be able to attract their players. So, for example, you have your little AAU program there in Long Island, and all of a sudden Coach X says, look, we need an exhibition game built, so now we're going to bring you and Jamal in, and we're going to pay you $175,000 to play this exhibition game against us, or $125,000, and that's not an exaggeration, all right, or or, or fifty or 60000 And then all of a sudden guys start saying, well, hell, you can make money in this AAU coaching thing. You play a couple of these exhibitions, or they say, Jamal, I really like what you did on your zone press, all right? Yeah. So I'm going to bring you to my camp, and I'm going to have you speak, and I'm going to pay you $30,000 to speak at my camp. Right. And so all of a sudden, people start saying, boy, I'm going to become an AAU coach. I'm going to do this. And then the great Sonny Vaccaro would came in, and what he did was, if you ran a top flight program, then he gave you to operate your program a couple thousand, a hundred thousand dollars, you know, as much as $200,000 to run your program. All right. And so now guys, all of a sudden that didn't have real lucrative jobs said, shoot, I can stop doing this. I can take this and I'm going to run my AAU program. And that's when AAU changed and it became an instrument of income as opposed of an instrument for development of young people. So, but it was created and started by the college coaches and how they tried to utilize it to change the landscape. Because here's what happened, Bill. All of a sudden, black coaches were getting jobs. Myself, Wade Houston, uh, Rudy Williams. I mean, we started getting, Leonard Hamilton, we started getting jobs. And people got nervous at the fact that this was going on. And they tried to find a way to offset that 
And one way to offset that was because, because we became points of differences. And in order to offset that, what they did was they walked in and that's when they started going straight to the AAU guys and offering uh, finances to come in and, and fill gaps on their exhibition games, uh, on their camps and things like that. And then that changed the scope of the AAU. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a big AAU guy. I'm a big proponent of it. It has helped a lot more kids than it has hurt. And, uh, but it got put in a different light when the financial rewards became evident in it that weren't there before. You so weren't expecting that answer, were you, Bill? <laughs> well, no, I always expect great answers, man. That was, you know, I, I that was a great, a great answer. answer for you to put it in a historical context, right? You know, right. so you uh, said what, so they so they got nervous. You're saying that that uh, other coaches got nervous because black coaches oh, yeah. were in jobs, so they were nervous about black coaches being able to recruit the black athletes. Yes, it, yes, and dominate and dominate the sport by their recruitment of the athletes. And so they look for alternative things, and that's when they locked into that. And basically, green outweighed black. <laughs> right, and yeah. then, and then, and that's where, and you think that's where we are now? Um, I I think we're at an evolution of that, and I, and I think like how many like how many black coaches have gone to Final Four? I mean, how many black coaches are dominant when you look at the top ten? I mean, you know, and so you know, something has changed. Okay, and I just think that it's no longer just because, you know, you're black. If John Thompson walked into a gym, everybody packed up their tent and went home. Okay, I mean, because, you know, you weren't going. He he did not lose. Now, he picked his battles, but Mm -hmm. he went when he picked it. He didn't lose many. All right. And so, you know, Nolan, the same thing when he went to Arkansas and he rolled through there and got himself a national championship. I mean, you weren't beating my man in the South. I mean, you know, I was a coach and I was coaching against him and I was ready to go play for him. I mean, so, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, you just weren't, you know, you just weren't going to be able to, 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 to do that. So they got concerned about that. And so, you know, they, they negated it, you know, and, and, um, and, and I think now, it has been negated. I mean, I, I don't think that that is as much of a cachet as it was back when I became a head coach in, 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 in 88 and in, the, in, in the 90s. Mm. So, you know, that's... You, you bring up a great point. Uh, but before I forget, I, I want to stay on this AAU thing. So what was the evolution of the AAU thing and then with the big apparel companies, the shoe companies came in, which eventually landed some people in jail. How did, how did, how did we make that jump from, you know, the, the progression that you laid out, then the AAU, and then these, you know, what we call the sneaker co- and apparel company. How did that enter in? What did that do to the, to the business of recruitment? Well, 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 the great Sonny Vaccaro came in and he set up a plan with Nike. And he first got it rolling because he got it, he, he labeled it grassroots and he started to go to the instead of the colleges, you know, because because obviously the colleges couldn't take care of all the AAU guys and all like that. So what happened was to be able to fund your programs, to be able to go out and get your best player, he wound up getting a niche of guys, maybe 10, 12 guys, all right, throughout the country. 
all right? And they kind of competed against each other with their budgets for the best players. And so they had the best players. And then he had his falling out with Nike, and then he wound up taking the same model over to Adidas. And he did the same thing in Adidas. And so, but it was the same formula. And so that all of a sudden, those guys became Nike guys or Adidas guys. And then um, uh, that's when the, and then the other shoe company, well, Sonny got Nike in and then he turned around and we got Adidas in and then Under Armour came along and they had to get in. And the brand that started college basketball Converse was ridden right out of town <laughs> and, 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 you know, and they became a dinosaur. So that was the evolution of the shoe companies coming in uh, to help supposedly on the grassroots, which they did to help in their development in the grassroots and everything. And all of a sudden you get a couple of stars and, uh, and it was close. People don't realize that, you know, Adidas made a hard run for Michael Jordan and they were very, very close to getting Michael Jordan, you know, and um, Gary Stokan was then at Adidas and now he runs the football foundation. You probably, you know, him, Bill in Atlanta, I mean, in all the major games that are in Atlanta, uh, basically comes out of, you know, his foundation. And, uh, you know, people see him as a football guy, but he was a huge basketball guy from Pittsburgh, you know, played it and coached at NC State and everything. But he, he when I first met him, he was with Converse, then he went over to Adidas. But that that's where the shoe companies came in and they really leveraged the grassroots and and got in early with the kids and then followed them throughout their, then latched on the colleges and 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 again, that's Sonny Vaccaro that cut the first uh, shoe company deal with with colleges and everything. And you know now they they become institutionalized and they got woven into uh, the athletic system in the United States now. Wow. Say goodbye to dull gifts. Lightbox lab grown diamonds are the brightest gift of the year, using cutting edge technology and innovative techniques. They've cracked the science of sparkle, creating the highest quality lab-grown diamonds you can find at a light price, $800 per carat. They have the same chemical makeup of natural diamonds, but just are grown in a lab. Because of their process, they can create stones in blush pink and beautiful blue, as well as a classic white. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds are the gift they'll never want to take off, priced so they won't have to. They really do make any outfit sparkle. Visit lightboxjewelry.com to add sparkle to your holiday shopping. That's lightboxjewelry.com. Lightbox Diamonds, never a dull moment. What I wanted to ask you before we got into it was if you were, and I think about this too, because we're both around the same age. Um, and I keep thinking about now, if I was getting into the business now, and my, my assumption is that, if you were, you know, if you were successful then, you'd be successful now. It's just the route would be different. So, what, what do you, what do you think about what you would be doing if you were a young black coach getting into the business now? Do you think it's harder? Do you think that it's easier? Do you think that the NBA and the pros make it make it better? How, how do you think that you would navigate the system now if you were, you know, a young guy now coming out? Well, 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 here's the thing. Certain, certain pieces, like you, the vehicle may be a little different, but, 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 but here's, the, here's the constant, okay? 
most of these kids, and you're around them as you're interviewing them all, they are frightened. They know what they want, but they don't know how to get it. And they're afraid and they're nervous that, they'll, that they won't get what they want. Most people, they're portrayed as being cocky or arrogant and all. And Bill, most of them are scared kids. All right. And, and, and they, they know what they want, but they don't know how to get it. And, and, and if you don't lie to them and if you can show them a plan, a constructive plan of how they can get to where they want to go, I think you will always have an opportunity. That's why Dion getting the football guy, obviously he showed him a plan of how he could get him to where he wanted to get to because most of them had no plan. And so I think that you have to be able to structure that. And it's the same thing that was structured before it was just a different vehicle. If you came to Indiana, Bobby Knight was going to get you to be the best college player, you know, or Dean Smith or whatever. And, and you look at it now, okay, when a kid goes, think of it like this, okay, Kansas, Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, when those places, that's like Oz, okay? And those guys that are there are like the wizard. And if they come in to see the ki a kid, a kid's going to visit because he wants to see the wizard. And he <laughs> wants the, the wizard to touch him, and he wants the wizard to give him a heart or courage or whatever so that he can finish his dream. And that's what they want. And that's why those programs always constantly get players because the wizard is there and they convince the kids that if you come to Oz, all your dreams will come true. And every kid winds up doing that because who turns down a chance to go see the wizard? All right. I love John Calipari, but he's the wizard. All right. You come to Kentucky and something special is going to happen to you. All right. You go to Duke. Something special is going to happen to you, all right? And every kid wants to pull that curtain and see that wizard behind there. That's my analogy. Mm. Right. So, so what did you think of the kid? You know, I wanted to ask you about the HBCU thing. You know, you, you mentioned Dion uh, a few times. And, you know, he's at Jackson State and all that. But, you know, you had the kid McCoy Maker, mm -hmm. you know, made uh -huh. headlines and went to Howard. Uh there's a big part of me, I did go to HBCU, but there's a big part of me that thinks that that the that train has left the station, you know, in terms of, you know, the HBCUs becoming an epicenter. I think what you got to do is just do your own thing, basically. But what do you think about about that, um, about uh, a guy, Coolmaker, going to Howard and, you know, people saying, well, this will this change the landscape, you know? And you just mentioned the wizard and all that. Sometimes it seems just such a steep mountain to climb that is, um, you know, it's like talking about wealth and the wealth gap in America, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't think, I think it's too, I think we're talking two different things. I don't think it'll change the landscape, but I do think that there'll be some anomalies that happen because of um, the, the individualism that certain kids have. I think that uh, the, the NLI is going to have a factor. I think the fact that nobody's talking about getting a degree 
you know, coaches are not coming in the house and selling a degree. Not I shouldn't say coaches. 90% of the coaches, you know, I mean, my God, I mean, we got Duke now recruiting one and dones. So, right. I mean, you know, you know, 10 years ago, you know, that, that was sacrilegious and right. everything. And so the educational piece, which it was part of that foundation, has kind of dissipated some, you know. And so I think that you're going to find some outliers that in the HBCUs that can wind up creating and competing. I mean, um, um, our good friend Tommy Amaker has found a way at Harvard to have an outlier because, I mean, he was right there on a couple of top 25 players, you know, and, and, and selling them on the idea that, look, you come to Harvard, you're going to probably go early. And what better to have on your resume to say, you know, you attended Harvard and be able to come back, you know, with the money you can make in the pros and be a Harvard graduate. I mean, and so and that had a lot of traction and a lot of track, uh, you know, to certain kids. So, you know, I, I, I do think that there is a changing landscape with that. But for the most part, uh, and I think the way television has picked up through the social uh, injustices that were done over the last year, year and a half, they, they've given more credence to the HBCUs. And Chris Paul has done, you know, a tremendous job of advocating that and everything. And uh, for him to take his time and his energy to be able to do that is a very, very special thing. Um, it should constantly be applauded. Uh, you know, so I, like I said, I think that there's certain things out there that could could affect and and create a change. What do you what do you think of of this pet? The most recent hiring cycle, uh, you know, for the, they had the largest percentage of black coaches ever. Phil Spots and for college basketball, it was about it was over fifty percent uh, compared to what it usually is 15 percent of black coaches hired. Um, you know, what was your feeling of, about that? Do you think that's that can be sustained, or you, th- you think that was a blip because of George Floyd? What what, what do you feel about that? Um, well, I, I think it's a different mechanism. I think when, when here's the thing people don't really understand. The initial black hiring were done by presidents, not athletic directors. I was hired by the president at Tulane. John Thompson was hired at, by the president at Georgetown. John Cheney was hired by the president at Temple. It was not the athletic directors that made the hires. It was the president's on the initial black entree in, in, the, in the head coaching. I think now the athletic directors now are starting to finally step up and are making a lot of, are making those types of choices through, again, the search firms are the X variable that makes it difficult for, and has made it a steeper hill for blacks coaches to have to climb. But I think that, um, uh, I hope it's it's an upward trend. You know, only time will wind up telling. You know, um, you know, John Thompson used to say, and Bill used to tell, hear him say this all the time. It, baby, we're fashionable right now, so let's ride the wave. You know, and, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. and so and so, I think right now we're fashionable, so let's ride the wave and see where it <laughs> takes us. But I mean, but that was John's old always John saying, you know. Yeah. Well, hey, hey, Perry, what, uh, you know, we talk about your head coaching gigs at uh, Tulane, Miami, Texas A&M. 
what was your, uh, did you have uh, any of those stand out, like your favorite gig? Uh, and one, and maybe another one is your most stressful. Oh, a Tulane, a Tulane, obviously, it's, it's hands down. Um, um, people there, I have, I still have real friends there. You know, coaches, a lot of times you come in and, you know, you really don't have like life friends, you, you know, people that are there pat you on your back while you're there. And then when you leave, you know, then, you know, put another shirt on and, you know, but uh, I love New Orleans. Uh, I've got some real friends there. Mark Moriel, who's uh, head of the urban league, uh, was the mayor when I was there. I mean, and uh, uh, college temple, who was the first black to play at LSU. And that's a story in and of itself. He's a marvelous uh, you talk about a success story. I mean, I mean, we still talk and communicate. Uh, I go back to the city, but I love Tulane. And the only reason I left, Bill, and, and let me tell you, I had a sweet job. If I tell you I had a seven-year rollover, I was special assistant to the president. Wow. And I had, but what happened was my president retired. My athletic director, who was Kevin White at the time, and now he's the AD at Duke, and he just retired, was my AD. They both retired within a year, a calendar year of each other. And so the job completely changed, and people started coming in that basically um, wanted to do things their way, which they have a right to do. And the dynamics of the job changed, my importance changed, and I got scared and I overreacted and I left and I and I left for a bad job uh, mm. because Miami did not have an athletic director. They had a guy in Paul D who was the president's attorney and was an acting AD. And Miami, as it is proved, is a shark's tank mm. athletically. And, you know, I did what he asked me to do. And then at the end of the day, I got punished for doing what he asked me to do. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, but 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 it was just it was just different. Than what, 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 what were your marching orders at Miami? My marching. He told me instead of going out, because, again, the boosters were very much involved in a lot of things. There was a lot of posturing for who was going to be the next athletic director and everything. And he told me, don't go out uh, like at Tulane, man. I would go out and visit with people, visit with the donors. Uh, I gave I gave New Orleans uh, when I was there the whole month of August, uh, you know, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the whole month of May in the spring. I would go out and raise and raise money and do that. And I liked it. He told me, don't do any of that. Don't take any meetings without clearing it with him. And so basically he told me just sit there, <laughs> coach the team, be, be conscious of that. And then all of a sudden when people said, well, we don't see him at this and we don't see him at that, then um, I tell you a story. They had a homecoming parade and they asked me to be on the float. So I said, yes, obviously. So the float went about a quarter of a mile, and then they had me get off the float and go with Larry Coker to a stand that was set up and do a pep rally, which I did, okay? Well, the float kept going. So now the people past that did not see me on the float. And so they claimed that I did not come and I stood them up 
And I caught a lot of grief for that. And nobody stood up and said, well, he was there, but he, but he, we had him do this. And so, and, uh, you know, and so that was the kind of miscommunication that I got caught up in. And that, that made it very difficult in my stay there to be able to do all the things that, you know, that I was trying to do. Not, not to mention, I mean, at Tulane, I remember you were, you were very successful. I don't think, I'm not sure Tulane has been relevant they're not, since. They've not. You and, know, uh, we, if you look at all the records, our guys set them. Uh, we went to the tournament and everything, and they've not been to the tournament since. Um, and it was very, very, and it just nice people, just a great environment. I mean, uh, you know, that dome and we would play in the dome sometimes that place would be rocking and our arena sat about 3,500 and they sold beer, beer, Jamal. And so teams would come in. There was some nice, I came out there and the Cajuns were drunk. Now they had been drinking since about six o'clock. And I knew it was no way in the world we were going to lose this game. It was just no way. And, uh, and the other team is looking around and all. Uh, and what they would do after we scored our first basket, everybody would throw beads on the floor for Mardi Gras. And all uh, like it was just an intimidating environment for us. And it was, I mean, I, I never had a feeling when I walked on the floor and I knew we were not going to lose, you know. Um I remember we played Louisville in there one year, and, and that was always our nemesis because Denny Crumb, great coach, great program, and, and they were the evil empire, and that's who we all were trying to chase. And, um, you know, and he didn't have one of his better teams, but they were still good, and we wound up beating them by about 20 points in there. And um, it, 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 it was just an awesome feeling and everything. And, yeah, we played we played Coach Cheney there, and mm. uh, we wound up beating Coach Cheney by about 18, 19 in that place. It was mm. an unbelievable environment. Mm. Wow! And you won wow. you won the Henry Iber Award in ninety two. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Just briefly, then after Miami, uh, tell me about the gig at Texas A and M Corpus Christi. What was what was that like? That that was an interesting deal. Here, here's what I was told. Uh, and, and as you say, you know, we, we, we as coaches, we don't tell everything and all like this. I'm going to tell you, all right. I was told that I was doing television, had a really good television schedule. I was doing Fox. Uh, they had a show called uh, ACC Sunday Night Hoops. And I was I was co-hosting that for four years or three years. I was I was doing uh, ACC games, Big Ten games, and, and the broadcasting was going good. But I was told I would never get another college job from the broadcast group. I had to get back on the sidelines by about two or three ADs. And so uh, I wound up taking the job at Corpus. And um, we, we were pretty good. The problem was, listen to this now, in four years, I had five ADs. Wow. And that just made it, it, it got to be where it was extremely frustrating. and. I, you know, I tried to step out of my contract after my third year uh, because there was two jobs I thought were going to come open and I was in position to get and I didn't get them. And that was deflating. And so I tried to get out of it. Uh, and they told me that I had to pay a buyout, which I was not about to do, even though that they were constantly changing athletic directors. 
and everything. I um I tell you how crazy it was. We went, this is stuff you can't make up. We went in front of the enforcement committee and the NCAA rep turned in the athletic director. Yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute now. I'm not finished now. The athletic director turned in the president. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're sitting there. And I'm saying only in a B movie can you see some foolishness like this. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and so needless to say, the athletic director got fired. The uh, 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 the uh, NCAA rep got fired. The athletic, uh, the president stayed for about maybe two more years and he retired. And so I, I just kind of wanted out. And so, um, so that's what happened there. But beautiful part of the world. Texas, a different part of the world. And all, but uh, you know, we had we had pretty good teams, and and but it just the leadership was a little shaky. What made you go go back on you know get back on the bench with uh, with Frank Martin at South Carolina? Because I always wanted to go to the Final Four, mm, and you did. And, and I thought, and I thought that Frank that was the only thing I felt in my career that had eluded me that coming in I wanted to do. You know, at Georgia Tech, when they went, I helped recruit that team, but I was not there to participate in it. And, um, you know, um, I can tell you some uh, some stories. I don't know how much time we got, but it, 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 I, we came close to Georgia Tech, and um, it didn't happen, and I felt like it gave me an opportunity. I missed coaching. Frank was great, and uh, and so I, that that got me to come back in – and um, and, and it, it was a fun ride, you know, and going to the final four was 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 it, it was a magical journey. It was really, really special. Right, right. So, um, you know, as, as we kind of wind this down, we could do this for another hour. But it's <laughs> Christmas Eve and, uh, you know, you got, you know, do you have, do you have, do you have children, grandchildren? Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, I have, I have two daughters and I have one granddaughter. Oh wow, that's great. That's yeah. great. That's a blessing, man. Yeah. Uh, so what do you want to do? You know, you've had a marvelous career, and this sounds like a book to 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 come, uh, and, and maybe made to a movie. But what do you want to do now? Uh as you have you satisfied the itch for coaching? When you look, when you look through the window, you know, say you're out of the house and you now look at the, the uh, at coaching through this window from the outside looking in, is it something you want to get back to? Is it like you're glad you did it, but now are you ready to do something else? Um, I tell you what, it depends on where the sun is shining from. I mean, or if it's right. I mean, I, I look at it. I still feel I have the energy. Uh, I could come back to coaching if it's the right situation. But I want to be a part of the evolution of the game of basketball. I, I, I think that there needs to be a guidance in there both for the young people that participate in it. I think for the young coaches that are trying to walk that, that mile and, 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 and do that. I think the administrative pieces, I think they need to hear the voice of experience. And I think they need to hear the voice of history. And I think they need to take in the cultural differences that make up the NCAA and not just try to paint it all with one brush. And I think that is what has got it in trouble today. And I've seen you on so many panels, Bill, 
and all like that. And I know that you've had a voice in, and, 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 and saying that, and I think that's why they bring you in because, you know, you are an intellect and, and, and they need some intellect right now to help guide them through. Uh, I, I say this in all humility. I think one of the greatest musicians of all times is Quincy Jones. And I think Quincy Jones produces, he, he, he performs, he does TV, he does movies and made a fortune out of before people know you could do that. He brings people together. I think I have multiple abilities to do those things. I just, the, the, the right situation to bring out that part of my talent is what I'm talking about trying to do. I think what they try to do is limit us a lot of times and they try to put us in a box. And because then we become very easy to describe, you know, like if I ask you, how do you describe Bill Roden? I mean, you would talk for an hour. You can't do that in one sentence, but they like to do that to you. So I think, am I a coach? Yes, I'm a coach. Am I a motivator? Yes, I'm a motivator. Um, Am I a humanitarian? Yes, I'm a humanitarian. But I think I want to keep my fingerprints in college athletics uh, and touching young people and development of coaches, development of the game, and figuring out ways to do that is what I'm looking to do right now. Yeah. Well, uh, oh, go ahead, Jamal. Sorry. You mentioned the evolution of the game. What what is what's the evolution of the game as as, as you see it? Uh, you are, you mentioned even you know off the court you got nil all this all these other things coming. But how do you see the evolution? Of, you know, specifically the college the college game. Like where okay, Jamal, let me tell you this, and, and I, I could get, like, roasted for this, and I don't know all the people that follow you, but analytics, mm-hmm. okay, that's become a big thing, okay? Right. Well, what analytics does, it tells you how to play something that has happened. Right. Okay? Okay, what we used to, what we did was, we created the narrative and changed the narrative before it happened. When I went to Georgia Tech and they had bags on their head, we changed the narrative. We didn't read, we didn't try to study what you need to do, how, uh, why this happened and all. We threw that out and we changed the narrative by going out and having personal relationships with guys, with developing talent, growing talent, touching people. And we as we as black folks, we have unique stories. We have unique backgrounds. And it's hard to put us under a calculator and expect us and say, this is how we act. They tried that with the SAT and the ACT. And now those, those have become outdated because we don't, you can't judge us. You can't analyze us like that. And so I think as looking forward, finding a way of touching and developing our, our youth and getting the best out of them and putting them in positions so they can be successful by motivating, by teaching, by listening, by touching them, I think is more worthwhile than looking at what a guy's numbers are all the time and uh, trying to define him strictly from that. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, it's like, I guess it's been a great Perry Clark philosopher, coach, <laughs> motivator, uh, but clearly you have a lot more to offer. And as, as I was hearing you describe this, you almost have to, you're looking to almost create something, you know, that would that would would take everything you've accomplished, everything you know, the wisdom, 
the connections, the contact, knowledge of the game, and put all this together and either create a position or be part of a program that wants you to play a, a role. You talk about the wizard. You want to be Merlin. You know, you want to be the black <laughs> Merlin, you know. Uh, and so it, it is really intriguing to kind of, you you know, you want to, you've been in the media, you've done play by play, you've been in the inside, you've been on the trail, you've been recruiting, uh, you know, you've been in so many aspects of the game. And it is like a, you're like an alchemist where you want to put all this together. And I think sometimes yeah. the difference between black coach, white coach, if you are a white coach or a white <laughs> person, then you know, whether they say, oh, we, we've invented analytics. You can fit into this slot. This Because, you know, they're kind of inventing stuff for themselves, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's what they do. Well, we're going to invent something, and right. we're going to be the CEOs of it. Right. And it's harder for us to do that. But um, that, that would be, whatever that is, would be a perfect, uh, you know, position. And hopefully, um, one of the things that sparked this conversation, that you were saying that back in the day, you know, you would sit at the at the table and listen to uh, Cheney and Big John and Nolan, and there was a natural handing down, handing the baton or handing information, and we would yeah, meet at the four and those kind of things. And we we really, I don't know if that vehicle exists anymore, but it definitely should. No, because you guys. Because guys like you and Wilbon making all the money, y'all ain't got time to do all that stuff. That's what it is. I mean, you know, speak, with, with Wilbon can speak for himself. <laughs> Wilbon and Stephen A. There's a whole other generation of guys oh, who think it's out. But, uh, but, uh, but definitely, uh. it would be great if uh, that kind of thing could be recreated in a way that makes sense in 2021. You it know, would. It would. Some sort of form and, and, and all. That that in fact, in, in all honesty, that's, that's something probably the NCAA should should work to try to do in the sponsor because I think that it would it would create tremendous growth for the sport. Period, yeah. and it's something yeah. that's needed because th there's a lot of mistrust right now that is going on. And the, and here's the other thing, Bill, and this is sacrilegious: the money's gotten too big. The yeah. the money the, the money just it's it, it's 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 really gotten way a long way from what we thought it would ever be when we first started doing this thing. Maybe not you, because you always had those grandiose plans and all like that. But I mean, it it, it is really, really grown. It, it, it goes back to what you said earlier in terms of how they were able to combat, you know, Big John and and you know from dominating recruiting wise. You know, they put they were able to put money in it, which changed the game. So, and that's kind of where we're at now. Yeah. Without yeah. question, I mean the NLI is 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 it's a game changer. I mean, and, and and here's the thing, you know, here's the thing. Can you imagine if Harvard could do NLIs and with the with with their resources? Can you imagine what Zuckerberg would play for a front line oh, <laughs> at Harvard? Huh? Would, he would put them all out of business. Huh? How about that? Huh? Yeah, very true. <laughs> very, well, you know, hey, hey, be careful now. You never, you know, Harvard might take over. <laughs> but you know, if Harvard wanted to, oh, yeah. that's what they wanted to do. They did, trust right. me. Right. You know, if they decide that's what we want to do, we want to dominate college <laughs> basketball, or we want to create quarterbacks. You know, they do. That's it. it. That's just not. Well, hey, hey, Perry, listen, man. Uh, this has been 
more than we could have hoped for. This this great conversation. This should be part one. Yeah, we got to do it again. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'm sure Perry will have his podcast next. You yes. know, where he could have hold. You know, you could have these kind of discussions on your own, Perry, and with all the people you know, all the coaches, all the athletes, all the players, all the people you know. You could do a fascinating podcast, if, particularly if you're willing to tell all the secrets. You know. <laughs> you know Burn all the bridges. Nah, nah. They're, they're, you know, you know. But here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned from writers. You know, all about vocabulary. You can uh, share yeah. information, but it's how you do it, and and, and, and and that's the bridge. You know, and and Bill, you have you have conquered that bridge very very well. I told you, man. The first time I saw you, I didn't know who you were working for. I said, <laughs> this guy got John Thompson talking to him and Bob Wade talking to him. He must, he must be with the FBI. He must be with the IRS. I said he's got something going on. Hey, hey, hey listen, Perry, we got to do this again, man. But uh, well, I look forward to it. No, have great. a wonderful Christmas, Jamal. Nice talking to you, and you I'm gonna circle back. Really appreciate uh, it, Perry Clark. Uh, in 47 years uh, in the business, and still looking for the next <laughs> levels. Hey, Perry, yeah. thanks so much, man. Have a merry Christmas. A great new year, and uh, look forward to seeing you on, on, on the big stage, another big stage. Yep. All right. You guys take care now. You okay. too. Take care, man. That's great. The great Perry Clark. So uh, it was a great conversation, Jamal. So before we let the people go, why don't you tell them how to, if they want to hear more conversations like this, they should subscribe and Yes, and definitely, definitely subscribe to the podcast so we, you know, so you get it directly to your phone uh, and you can listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts, either Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, et cetera. Uh, of course, we're also brought to you by Bet Online and also on social media. Uh, check us out, follow us at BrosPod on Twitter and at BrosPod on Instagram. All right. For all those people out there, uh, you know, wishing you a tremendous uh, Christmas a uh, very happy and healthy uh, New Year's. Just yes. remember, we keep reminding you, man. You know, I know everybody's traveling and doing, you know, running about, but uh, you know, this is a different. This is a different time, and you know, this is definitely the new normal. So, just be very, very, very careful. Stay careful, and uh, you know, try to just do the safe thing because we want it. You want you want you to hear us. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All, all for selfish reasons, you know. Stay safe. Stay safe. You know, keep yourself safe. safe. Keep keep me safe. How about that? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Wear those masks. Exactly. If you haven't been vaccinated, get that get the get booster. Vaccinated. Get the booster. Vaccinated. All that stuff is good. Yeah, the booster saving people out here. Yeah, like the vaccination is like your armor. You know, right. it's armor. You know, right. so put that armor on. Be a superhero. All right. Hey Jamal, listen, man. Uh, Merry Christmas. Been a great, uh, you know, uh, been a great uh, 2021. It's definitely been different. De yeah. yeah, definitely different. Definitely yeah. different. And, uh, and you're right. We're, we're closing in on the end of the year. Uh, I, I think we, we all thought 2021 would probably be a little better year than it was. And and I guess it was slightly better than 2020. But uh, hope, here's to 2022. Here's being 20 that year we were hoping for for the past couple of years. Yeah. Each chapter gets better. So, all right, everybody, stay safe, uh, keep praying, and God bless.
See you next week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.